welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. This one is live for Clean Technica subscribers, sub- supporters, technicians, members. We have a few different levels of support, financial support. So we're going to start doing more of these live where you can listen or watch as we're doing them. Make sure nothing saucy gets cut out. Cut out. Um, and you can also submit questions via the, the Q&A text question tool. So... Let's just jump into it here. I'm Zach Shahan, Director CEO of Clean Technica, and Rodney Hooper here has, I think, like an encyclopedic brain about the lithium market globally. You know, you, you know a ridiculous number of stats uh, and facts and what's happening, the trends. So it's really excitement, real uh, honor for you to be on here again with us today, going through a number of hot topics. Um, Rodney Hooper is with RK Equity. We also talk a bit with Howard Klein. One of our last podcast, recent podcasts was with Howard as well. Rodney, to kick things off, maybe how, how about we jump into uh, your, your estimate, an update on your estimate for global lithium demand and supply in 2030. Okay. Hi, Zach. Good to be back with you again. Um, yeah, since we've last chatted, uh, things have moved on. I can't remember if that was pre or post Tesla battery day, but um, it was po- now, we- it was pre. I think Howard said. I think when we. Yeah. I think so. So yeah. So um, I guess uh, you know, with Tesla stating you know their objective of wanting three terawatt hours of in-house battery cells, everyone's had to move their move the goalposts a little bit. So um, uh, my current forecast for lithium demand in 2030 is about 2.85, 2.9 million tons. Um, That comes out to, uh, uh, you know, you've got um, some industrial demand, but that comes out to about 3,400 gigawatt hours of uh, battery cell demand uh, in 2030. Supply, you can really throw a dart wherever you like, but it's going to be it's, it's, because price will always affect uh, production, but it's going to be well short as we stand now. So I won't rehash. I'm sure, sure how it's, you know, um, giving you the chicken little, the sky's falling on our head, running around, you know, we need lots of money, uh, which we do, but um, suffice it to say, it'll be substantially less than that. So we need to see shifts. Um 
just on that topic, uh, Zach, I think it's really interesting because we've seen a lot of OEMs step forward and make some bold claims about what percentage of their auto lineup is going to be EV by 2030. And almost all of those companies that have stated that don't have control over their battery supply chain. Yeah. So it's a really bold statement to make when you don't have the raw materials or the battery supply guaranteed. But so it's more of an ambition, I would think, than a than a guarantee. And it's confusing. I just you know try to get your take on that because you know you know much more. Do you find it as disingenuous or do you see it as just a starting point and they're going to try to get their ducks in order now and get supply chain going or naivety, uh, naivete with like not realizing how much they need to focus on this? What's what's your opinion? Yeah, look, so I think um, when it comes to something like Europe, if you see an adoption of the more stringent CO2 emission Uh, standards being accepted, then you need to see EV adoption in the region of 60 to 70 percent by 2030 to meet a a 47 and a half gram CO2 limit. Because if you think about it, a plug-in hybrid on its own is um, around uh, 40 to 45 grams. So, you know, you'd need almost an all plug-in hybrid world. But as you know, they're talking about some adjustments in the latest Euro 7 submissions where they're talking about excluding, uh, you know, uh, uh, plug-in hybrids from 2026 or not including them on the sustainable list. So as far as Europe is concerned, stating something like wanting 70% or 100% electric there is a logical thing because if you look at those emission standards and you look at um, what is expected in terms of uh, cities and countries banning ice, you know, petrol and diesel and even plug-ins by 2030, the list keeps growing. So it's a logical thing you're going to need to do it in Europe. I don't know where the US is going to go, but I think realistically we're likely to see an introduction of more stringent standards, but it's not legislation yet. So I, I don't think Europe is optional by 2030. I think it's going to be compulsory. So OEMs are playing into that. They the other thing is, is if you look under internal combustion engine supply chain, when you need more of, of the raw materials that go into those vehicles, you kind of just say, I need it and it happens. Whereas, again, I don't think they have a deep enough understanding of the difference between energy vehicle raw material supply chains and internal combustion engine raw material supply chains. But it seems like they've got to know at least what I know, right? Which is that you need you know, five or more years to get a mine going. Do you think they really don't have that? They really just expect it's going to come along like their normal supply chain? I think that, you know, nine years is a long way away, so you can make a lot of promises. But I, I, I guess right. if you look at the key people, if you look at what is going on and the, and the companies that are being are taking the EV uh, adoption seriously and you look at Tesla and you look at even VW, they are signing off-take contracts. BMW has signed off-take contracts now with Livent for lithium. So the players that are, are doing it are taking it seriously. The others, I guess, are still relying on their battery cell supplies, which, as I say, doesn't make it any easier. It just means you pretend that it's someone else's problem. Well, I, f- I forgot that we didn't talk after. I felt like we must have talked after Tesla 
battery day, but I've talked with a, a number of, you know, your colleagues um, ben, at Benchmark Mineral, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, et cetera. And um, I guess I've had this conversation many times, but I'm curious how your forecast, I mean, it was a big surprise how much Tesla was aiming for by 2030 uh, across the industry, it seemed. How did your forecast for that change and how does that like reshuffle industry players or, or um, uh, the pipeline as you see it? So you know, one had to, you know, adjust on that. I think, unfortunately, you know, even though it's nine years away and you can do a mine in five to seven years, I don't think realistically you can accommodate Tesla's three terawatt hours and everyone else's. So I think that's just, it's going to be very difficult. Although Tesla, as you know, is exploring producing some raw materials and cathode on their own. I think it was more, when I made the adjustment to my forecast, I think, um, Zach, it was more along the reality of, if you look at the economics of EVs, regardless of, unless something extreme happens in raw materials, by latest 2025, EVs are going to be cheaper than internal combustion engines. So commercially, post-2025, we should see a steepening of the S-curve. Then you add in the banning of internal combustion engine sales in most major auto markets by 2030. You have to, you cannot look at EV penetration on a linear basis post-2025, in my opinion. It's going to have everything going for it. It's going to have bans. It's going to have um, commercial uh, superiority, et cetera, that you should see a much steeper steepening of the EV penetration. So... I don't agree with linear projections on EV sales post-2025. So I looked at it, and the acceptance, if you look at surveys and what's happening, as people get a chance, because a lot of the time, a lot of OEM salesmen, you know, they in the dealerships, they stuff an EV at the back, and they don't talk yeah. about it. But now people are driving them. You know better than me. Once you've been in an EV, do you see the, the superiority for what it is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah, consumer awareness is is just is growing very fast already, and it's just 2021, uh, as you said, competitiveness. But then there's there is basically expected to be a huge gap between demand and battery mineral supply. Correct, battery supply. You see a big gap in the. So 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 that's that's a limiting factor. So here we get to it. So lithium isn't rare. Elon Musk has said that. We've said that before. Getting it commercially is if you wanted to scale really quickly. One of the easiest routes is to do spodium and concentrate mines all over the world, and they are. They're in Australia, they're in Canada, they're in Africa, you know, Brazil, South America, and then ship that to China. And you could scale, because in China, if you get a permit, you can have a chemical conversion plant up and running in a year. And you can, you can scale a spodium and concentrate mine pretty quickly. But the reality is, and as we know, is that the carbon footprint in producing, uh, you know, um, battery raw materials is now coming into the spotlight. And if you ask me for a forecast, I would say that you people need to start preparing themselves for $100 a ton of carbon, you know, carbon taxes in the future. That's what you need to get your head around. The other thing is localized supply chains is you know, if America wasn't comfortable, you know, being fully reliant on OPEC, well, why would it be fully comfortable on relying on China for, um, 
for its for its lithium. So if we if we assume that people are going to want a fairly large percentage, and we know the European Raw Material Alliance has stated a, a goal of 80% locally sourced raw materials, and in particular lithium, then it is harder to do it in those locations, and you are going to have difficulty meeting demand. But that's not to say that it's it's too late. The funny thing is, you know, if you spend 20 to $30 billion, if you invested 20 to $30 billion, you'd go a long way to getting there, possibly a bit more. And if you think of the hundreds of billions that are being committed to EVs, it doesn't seem like a lot. And also the amount of money that goes into uh, drilling new oil wells and that kind of thing. Uh, well, so just to close out on that topic, perhaps um, if there is a, you know, a, a big imbalance between supply and demand. Uh, one of our writers, Mark Martin Vinkhausen, uh, has has published great stuff on this. Where basically there's going to be a we, we still see a, an exponential increase in demand, and limited supply is going to probably then just crash the ice vehicle market, where you're going to have very bad, very poor. Um, demand and resale value for ice vehicles, even if there isn't production capacity for the amount of electric vehicles people want. So there'll be, you know, longer wait lists, people deferring buying a new car. Do you see that as the case? Do you see, um, do you have, want to comment on that concept at all? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one because the one thing that I was fearful of, uh, Zach, is that Europe would shift towards producing plug-in hybrids as a sort of stopgap with smaller mm -hmm. battery packs. So you can produce sort of four, four plug-in hybrids for every one full battery electric. So you could use that as a backdoor way. But the question, as I said, if, if, if they make the adjustment on the Euro 7 and they effectively ban plug-in hybrids in the second half of the 2020s, that option is shut down. So I, I do think we're already seeing that. I mean, again, we're sort of seeing not great uh, general auto sales happening right now. So we're already seeing people sort of waiting to say, okay, well, I'll, I mean, Europe's been quite a disappointment. I know COVID's had some impact, but the sales have been quite poor. They're supposed to have recovered this year and they haven't. So, um, you know, I, say I'd that, point to you. Say that again. The, the, what's the so, disappointment with Europe? So European auto sales were meant to rebound this year after a horrendous year last year under full COVID, yeah. and they're not rebounding. Yeah, yeah. So I heard sales, like battery sales instead of sales. <laughs> no, and I was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, well, it's uh, they're starting to rebound a little bit, the overall market, but the EV market share is is staying. It's actually increasing already compared to yeah, last so, year. So. so so our forecasts are in order to avoid CO2 fines on average, you need about 18.5% EV penetration in Europe this year to avoid CO2 fines. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the number. Um, but, you know, you've you raised the point. I mean, look at the, the Tesla Semi and Saba. They're already booting that out to 2022 now because there's a shortage of cells. Yeah. I mean, I mean um, this is, yeah. And this is one of the, uh, you know, as, as great as Tesla's progress is and as much as they focus on it, um, the semi has been postponed for years just based on cell supply. I mean, when we talked to Tesla's president um, of automotive, Jerome Guillen, in 2009, March 2019, it seemed like that was just the main limiting factor. And now it's 2021. 
if you think about it, let's say a semi, the, the long range semi has 600 kilowatt hours in it. How much do you make selling one semi versus putting that into 10 model threes? I guess less, <laughs> significantly so, less. It's also why I think, I think in concept, and I think it is very important that Tesla shift to a $25,000 model at some point, because in China, 60% of the population earns $150 or less a month. You know, the average two thirds of the cars sold in China are less than than $25,000. And a lot of them are, are low value. So in order to feed that market, you're going to need a cheaper model. But the reality is, unless cells and, and, and raw materials are very abundant at that point, you'd be cannibalizing your margins to go to a cheaper car. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's sort of a key point is the limiting factor for bringing down costs is, is, under under supply more, more or less you know i mean the more supply the the more the cost will come down on the batteries and that's sort of a key determining factor of the cost of the car so um well let's um uh, do you have any more comments you want to say anything else about takeaways from tesla battery day including perhaps their their sort of uh, their their foray into mining a bit and production yeah so they you know they um they're looking to do, um, they've got a Spodgerman concentrate a supply contract from Piedmont, um, and they are looking to do their own hydroxide production in Austin. I think that's a good initiative. It was the whole hoo-ha about clay. We'll, we'll wait to see. I mean, uh, commercially, can that be done? We'll wait. We'll wait to see that. But I think, you know, they, you know, I think they can master certainly you know they've got the brains to throw the manpower at this and uh, i think they realize you know their ambitions i said from the start um zach that there would be a million pre-orders on the cyber and now it looks like we finally got there <laughs> i think that's going to be a real hit you need a lot of raw materials going into these things yeah the cyber truck is an interesting one because there's a lot of interest in it but i know a lot of tesla I know that a lot of Tesla, you know, fanboys, um, I'll count myself in there, have several reservations with the hope that it will be autonomous and you can run a little bit of a small taxi network, robo taxi network with them. I know a lot of people have like eight or 10 reservations. Um, so I'm sure that warps the situation. I don't know what percentage of, you know, the reservations are these sort of multi-reservation holders though. Uh, but well, to wrap up the European issue, perhaps to, um, well, for now, we'll come back to it. Uh, one interesting thing I saw on those uh, your EU requirements was, um, I think it was Michael Liebrich, founder of New Energy Finance, now Bloomberg New Energy Finance, said last year that the 2020 numbers would actually look, were being held back because that was used, uh, 2020 is used as a benchmark for future targets. So automakers want it to be as low as possible without having to pay fines. So as, as much as we saw a big increase in EV market share in Europe last year. Uh, as you said, it should boost a lot this year and going forward. 18.5% um, is a significant increase over last year. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there was COVID, which, which demolished normal car sales while 
sort of orders for EVs were being filled because um, they were like months in advance, made months in advance and that kind of thing. So do you want to comment any more on that? Um, yeah, sort of I mean, 2020... it raises a valid point. So so in 2020, uh, as you know, uh, the the Euro uh, OEMs had a 7.5% a 7.5 gram super credit that they were allowed to use over three years. And as it looks like, a lot of them have used a fairly large amount of that up. So that's a sort of sleight of hand, if you will. So you could have mm -hmm. a higher fleet average to use for the future, for the future pricing and, and for future targets and still meet whatever the 95 gram, you know, non-weight adjusted by using your, up your seven and a half grams of super credits. So you could do that. But um, again, I, I still believe that um, the OEMs have said that they will accept a higher a more aggressive target in 2030, provided governments do the charging infrastructure. And that's something that we can, you know, that's another thing to discuss because China cut back on bio subsidies. But if you look at the rate at which they, the charging infrastructure is growing in China, it's very impressive. Mm. They've exceeded EV sales growth. Whereas in Europe, it had a reasonable growth, but it's got quite a long way to go. So um, that's what the OEM sort of stipulated. So I, do, I still do believe, yes, they, they might have had a little bit of a sleight of hand. And we also know about this business of selling to yourself or selling to the dealerships that, that came up in Europe. But um, longer term, I, I, you know, I think the penny has dropped that if you, if you don't participate and move into an EV world, you're going to be left behind. So you may as well get on top of this. Yeah. Yeah, the actually, you know, the last podcast we have published at the moment was with the guys at EV Volumes who do tremendous work tracking EV sales and and whatnot. And uh, Jose Pontes wanted to focus on uh, charging in Europe instead of sales or forecasts because that's a big bottleneck there, as you point out. Uh, and you know, the actual the the market share is increasing significantly faster than it did for Norway, which was obviously led the way. So Norway saw EV charging bottlenecks and crunches along the way. I know we had a conference with on EV charging in Europe where that was a hot topic. But the the, the growth of EV market share in, in other countries now, Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, uh, all a lot of these countries is much quicker than Nor Norway's was. So it's I think it's a it's a great point that charging is going to be a, a big bottleneck right now, and um, yeah. Well, well, let's move on to you have on a bullet list of ideas of things to talk about. E U.S. EV sales penetration and estimates for 2025 and 2030. I sort of shy away from this topic because I find it a little depressing <laughs> compared to Europe. But okay, uh, what so, are you, so what are your so thoughts? When, when this comes up, Zach, I always say, you know, when you compare it to China, it's not about the sales, it's about the sales. Now, if you look at what is growing as a market share in China, it's the A00 glider weight. It's the Wuling Mini EV and the, mm -hmm. the other um, Lingbox, you know, they've got a Coco or whatever it's called that's coming in at like $4,000. You either have very small or you have luxury sort of transfer. And again, that ties into the fact of how many people have low income. So in my opinion, Chinese uh, EV battery pack average sizes are going to plateau around the sort of low to mid 40s. 
In comparison, if you look at the models being released in the US, the Rivian 135 kilowatt hour, the GM Hummer 200, the Cybertruck, I don't know, it's going to probably be 100. I mean, the Bollinger class six or seven truck is 402 kilowatt hours. So <laughs> it's enormous EVs. So my point is, I think, and if you want a controversial statement, here it is, I think the US will sell half as many EVs as China in 2025, but will deploy as much in gigawatt hours or possibly more because they're going to have double the average battery pack size. Yeah, that sort of fits with our history of McMansions and Escalades and Hummers and that kind of thing. That's, so it, it, consumer preference is, and you know, there's a long way to roll out charging infrastructure in the US, but it's also consumer preference. So that is what I see. 2030, you know, it will, it will progress from there. But I, by 2030, I have a more aggressive target. I believe that the U.S. gigawatt hours of, of uh, cells deployed in EVs and in energy storage is going to be 600 gigawatt hours, possibly more. That alone is going to mean you need 500,000 tons of lithium for the U.S. alone. That's against my 2.8, 2.9 target. However, because the U.S. loves heavy cars where you're going to need high nickel cathode in order to propel those around and people want big cars, five to 600 miles in a single charge in 10, 15 minutes, you're going to need high nickel cathode and that and silicon doped anodes or solid state. Take your pick. I'm, I'm more in favor of silicon doped anodes. And then... Um, so within that 500,000, you're probably going to have 400 to 450,000 tons of hydroxide. And that will be, according to my numbers, if we add Canada on top of that, then North America is going to be 25% of hydroxide demand in 2030. Now, we called Europe early. People didn't see it. We always felt that demand and battery cell capacity was always going to grow aggressively in Europe. It now is. The forecasts. I see Bloomberg's latest forecasts are high. Now we're saying we think that people are underestimating the U.S. I think the U.S. is going to have at least 12 to 15% of battery cell production capacity by 2030, and that's two to two and a half times higher than a lot of other forecasts. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I always love a controversial statement from you because I know it's based in facts, but it's also uh, <laughs> spicy. Uh, well, I've talked with Howard, of course, about policy stuff. You know, he's he's big pushing on the, you know, policy matters to try to you know, regionalize supply a bit better. Um, can you speak a little bit about what you see as far as then mining of lithium and nickel in North America? Do you see and any specific so I, projects or companies or or yeah? Forecasts? So so I. I, I think that the U.S. is very likely, once EVs are an undeniable, is, is very likely to start to push for domestic supply. So if, if you take North America in total and add a bit on more for Canada and, and go sort of with an 80% target like they have in Europe, then suddenly you're needing sort of 450, maybe even as high as 500,000 tons needed in North America. I think that we believe that... Um, uh, you know, we like the hard rock to hydroxide thesis. So we think that Canada's the Canadian assets are being underpriced. We think there's some decent spodumin concentrate 
opportunities up there and they can supply into, even if they don't produce the lithium chemicals, those can be shipped down into the US, into the supply chain. So that said, you know, hard rock can only do so much. There's quite a lot of brine, there's clay, there's all sorts of things. I think if you're realistic, you need about 700,000 tons of capacity, of which even if that operates at 80%, then you're only talking about what's that 560 as effective capacity. And then not everyone's going to hit battery grade. People will miss. So, you know, 700,000 tons of capacity and you've kind of got to develop pretty much every lithium project that's going. So, so, so that's already sort of uh, on the map. Well, I think that, that that's going to that's going to come in, and I think that you know I think that uh, you, you know you're going to see support uh, pushed in the U.S. Uh, to to assist in in local projects. And I mean, to think of the scale of it, Zach. So let's just be clear: the global demand for lithium hydroxide for batteries of any type, not just EVs, all of them is about 130,000 tons a year LCE, our forecast. And I'm saying to you that the US is going to need on its own about 400,000 tons by 2030. So the US on its own is three times the size of the global market in 2021 for hydroxide. And we have close to nothing right now, right? So Silver Peak, there's a little bit and then there's conversion. So at the moment, yeah, I mean, at the moment inside the US, maybe 10 to 15,000 tons, and that gets shipped out. And, who do you, stay. and can you say what companies you see sitting on these deposits and likely to ramp up? Well, I mean, you know, there's a long list. Obviously, Piedmont uh, did the spodium and concentrate supply for, um, for Tesla, and, and they're looking to do uh, their own hydroxide and possibly uh, a merchant strategy where they'll convert other materials so they they've got to deal with Siona they're bought in 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 Canada you've got but are they uh, sitting on like are they sitting on a lot or like are they sitting on a, a big portion of that potential total or no 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 I mean listen as I'm saying to you, you you need you need everything and you need all hands on deck for this but you know I mean Piedmont could grow if they if they were to um to be fed spodium and concentrate from elsewhere. I mean, in Canada, critical elements is close to permitting and, and that has the potential to grow frontier. You've got James Bay with Galaxy. You've got, um, you know, so you've got uh, a selection of, uh, of, of mines up there. Um, we think more potentially to come. And you've got and then you've got the clays, you've got uh, Lithium America, but they're having a little bit of a wrangle. And again, you know, the issues about being on federal land rather than private land. Mm -hmm. There's all the, the um, DLE projects. You've got a, a standard Lithium, you've got E3 in Alberta, and you've got the Salton Sea. So add them all up. I'm saying even if you funded that lot, it's, it's going to be a hard rush to meet this target, I can assure you. So then who do you see is sort of like looking for, who do you see is, is going to, are, are all the players there on the field basically looking and they're like, okay, when, when more money comes in, we develop that, we, we jump on that land, or is it still a case of you got to find them? So, so I mean, in terms of a process, the other thing that makes it more complicated, Zach, is when you, when the US went for energy independence, they allowed fracking and they did fracking and you produce oil. 
with the, the EV battery supply chain, it's more complicated because it's not one product, product. You've got to produce the raw materials and the raw materials have got to be processed into cathode and then the cathode's got to go into cell and then the cell is either module or pack or straight into the structure. So there are three components of the supply chain that have to be done. Now we're seeing, thank goodness, SK and LG kissed and made up or didn't or there's payment and a settlement and royalties and you've got LG already talking about another plant in Tennessee. You've got Tesla obviously uh, ramping up and in you know, Cato but they're looking to do their own 4680 in Austin. So it starts with the cell production and then it's got to move to cathode and then it's got to you know, be raw materials fed into the cathode. But you need all three components because it won't really be helpful yeah. if you well, do cells in America and cathode comes from Asia. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like the cell production will ramp as needed, you know, that those companies will jump on it. And the cathode production, I, you know, not being an expert, I'm hopeful that, you know, the people who can do that will say, okay, look at this opportunity, let's make a lot of money. And that'll work. My biggest question is about the raw materials, since that always seems like a long process and like not a, not a 100% given that the resources are going to be Easy yeah, to sorry, get. that's a good point because you can build the cathode plant and you can build the battery cell plant a lot quicker than you can a mine. So, and for I, the I mining, think, do you see like, are do you see the players that are on the field now as being the players that are on the field in 2030, or do you see a need for other, a lot more uh, players to come in and, and sort of find a way to to get more minerals? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good question. I think that um, you know we. We are working with, uh, you know, some participants who are unlisted, so they're not factored in yet, and they might emerge. Um, I guess our point is more to immediately address the situation. We think the quickest route is the hard rock to hydroxide. We think you can ramp up the Canadian spodumen and then process that either in Canada or the U.S. It is the shortest timeline. There is, of course... You, you know, again, it's a question of, you know, live and processes Argentinian, uh, you know, carbonate made from brine at the Hombro Moto in the US. So can you do more of that? Can you have more of, uh, say, South American brines feeding into reprocessing facilities in the US? That's an alternative. So it's and do you more... Think, do you think live and Albemarle, these big players are going to be the... They're going to keep their, their sort of huge market share or do you do you think there's going to be a more diversity in the in that side i think the incumbents because they they control a lot of the technical skills will be the players to exist you know uh, ganfin is is a real player i think as far as china is concerned i guess we'll see how politics plays out but they are, are very good on the technical side but yes i think albemarle has got projects coming on so it could well alivent has stalled a little. It's not the cheapest producer, so they're going to need more constructive pricing in order to expand their production. But yes, I think incumbents are going to be the backbone. The question is, once they are through their existing pipeline of brownfield and greenfield projects, do they then start to look to acquire or partner with some of the other new projects that are on offer? Mm -hmm. um, the good assets and then, you know, shorten the timeline. Because again, if you're going to be talking about going back to the exploration stage 
you're talking seven years. Yeah, one of the guys we interviewed um, uh, from from Cobold, which was his focus on finding uh, resources. And I mean, <laughs> from that to, to setting my mind, it's just such a long and complicated process. It's a little uh, unnerving. Um, well, any more comments on the, the U.S. demand and and supply then for 2025 to 2030? And do you, and do you want to put any percentages on that? Um, well, that- I mean, so Zach, you'll have a bit, as good a guess as I. So what is Biden's incentive plan going to look like? Is it $10,000 with an income cap and, and point of sale discount? Or is it, what's it going to look like? Because a model choice on its own was going to boost you know, yeah. demand, but $10,000 per EV at point of sale, and it's going to go bananas, I think, or it's going to and do there's very also, well. I mean, there's also the expectation that Tesla will get brought back in, which, you know, it hasn't had, nobody's been able to get a Tesla and a tax credit for a while. Uh, I got half of one on mine, um, the 3750, because it was phasing out already. Um, and there's an expectation that they'll say, hey, you're a leader, there's no reason you should be excluded, at which point, you know, Tesla... Demand could could rise a lot again, but then again, it's just the production capacity is the limitation. I don't think, uh, I mean, I see like three Teslas on an intersection right now, which is up from like maybe one a year or, t- or so ago, but uh, they can only produce so many vehicles. But yeah, that's uh, so. So, so if, I, if I were to give you a, if I were to give you a number, I would say, and it depends on total auto sales, but I would say around. A 15% EV penetration by 2025. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.